What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. Today is Thursday, March 16th. As we record the show, I'm Carlos Clazo, as always, joined by Ben Badler. What's going on, man? How are you doing? I'm doing well, Carlos. I've I've changed my mind on something today, though. Wow. I'm curious what this is. Yeah. So I've been listening to the chatter that's been going on today after, obviously, the big injury. Got another... Another player getting hurt, and there's talk about whether, you know, MLB should just cancel this whole event, that it's too risky. You're referring to the World Baseball Classic? Well, you know, teams, people are saying teams shouldn't let their players participate in these exhibition games Mm -hmm. that don't matter and can result in a serious injury, uh, and that can cause them to... To miss time from the games that actually matter. And I I think I am coming around to the realization that I agree. Mm -hmm. I know it's important for MLB and a lot of fans seem to like it, but I don't know that it's worth the risk anymore. So I have decided I think it is time to cancel spring training. I think I, I feel really bad for kind of ruining your joke there in the middle of it. Well, we have played Ben. We have beautifully done. We have Cade Cavalli is is going to have Tommy John surgery. Andrew Painter hopefully doesn't have to join him. He has a serious elbow injury. Gavin Lux tore his ACL in a game. Brendan Rogers dislocated his left shoulder. Uh, He might have to miss the entire 2023 season. I think fans are just tired of spring training and seeing the players on their favorite teams getting hurt. I mean, isn't, isn't that what the conversation is? Yeah. You know, I, I think that you're onto something there. Maybe we just bang spring training entirely, uh, start with the games that matter. I think we should honestly go a step further and we should basically start writing it into contracts that before you take the field and after you leave the field, we're going to put like you in a very small box. that's padded on all the walls just to make sure that no injuries can happen off the field um when you're not playing for the games that that matter for the owners and for the uh for the teams that would be another logical step to make at this point i think that would be progress yeah obviously there's been a lot of chatter about the world baseball classic and whether or not it matters and the injuries associated with it obviously the big one is edwin diaz uh at this point is i think it was reported today actually he's going to be out for the entire year after injuring his right knee after celebrating with his Puerto Rican teammates after they beat the Dominican Republic in what has been probably the most exciting game of baseball we've seen in since the World Series, I would say that that pretty easily that's been the case. I I'm a bit bummed I didn't get to watch that game live. I watched the condensed game on YouTube and it seemed awesome, um, but I've been in North Carolina watching maybe three first round picks this week. So it's been great to do that on, on my end. Um, even if maybe I haven't been able to watch as much world baseball classic as I wanted, but yeah, I I honestly think a lot of the conversation around it it is ridiculous. I, I think that to your point, players are going to get injured in all sorts of scenarios and using a freak injury in the world baseball classic to make some sort of argument that, therefore the entire event is pointless because a few teams are are going to be impacted negatively by it is I think I mean personally I think it's incredibly short-sighted because I think the world baseball classic is great for baseball as a whole um 
personally, I, I think it's a lot of fun. It's very cool to see how the different cultures celebrate and watch the game and the environments that we're seeing in MLB stadiums that frankly have never had environments like we've seen the past few weeks. Um, it's, it's been a blast for me. I've, I've found myself just enjoying watching baseball. And I, I think sometimes you can maybe take that for granted a little bit when you're watching it every day, but it, it truly is cool to see how the fans and how the players themselves and, and the coaches on these teams really care about this event. Um, and certainly from my perspective, it's not lessened in the least just because we have an unfortunate injury or, or maybe a couple that, that take place within it. Yeah. And it's really, it's not like we're talking about players going out for two months. We're talking about the, the guys are going to play four, maybe five or six games, obviously less for pitchers. So it's not even that much time away from their teams where they would otherwise be playing in baseball games anyway. Um, but yeah, that DR Puerto Rico game was great until, until the ninth inning when all of a sudden I'm watching on FS1 and then they're like, all right, now we're going to go to the pregame of the USA game. I'm like, no, it's the ninth inning. I, I want to watch the end of, of this game. What are you doing? They're like, go, go, go to FS2, which of course I don't get. And I'm sure a lot of people don't get that channel either. I was like, oh, and I, I kind of get it from their that, I, perspective. I, honestly, but... I don't, I don't get that at all because that's not even, it's not even the norm in the industry for other games and other events and in for basketball games or NFL games, whenever the first game is run into the starting time of the, the next game, the second game is the game that gets bumped to an alternate channel and you finish the game that's that's at the closing minutes. So it's not like this is some sort of standard move for the TV networks either. So I don't really understand that one at all. Uh, but we could also pile on YouTube TV into <laughs> companies that are making poor decisions for baseball uh, with them dropping MLB Network. And then also it was announced today they're raising the prices. So I'm a little bit personally upset with YouTube TV. You're you're out on Fox at this point. We, we really aren't going to be able to watch baseball uh, with all these companies that we hate so much just preventing us from doing so. Well, I get, the, I get why they would want to show the USA game because they probably would think more people are tuning in just for the USA to watch them. But, but at the same time, it's not like... But- it's yeah, not like the DR and Puerto Rico are like, it's not like Nicaragua versus China, right? Like these are MLB stars on yeah, I was both teams. Say the entire DR lineup and the majority of the Puerto Rican lineup is affiliated with all sorts of MLB teams. It's not like these are players that, that American fans don't care about. Yeah. Yeah. The best closer in what in the game maybe was coming <laughs> in to pitch the ninth inning yeah. against an all-star lineups. I, yeah, I agree. I was pissed. I was like, I can't, I literally cannot watch. The last so, inning so did you? This. What did you do? Just had to like kind of follow it on Twitter and then watch after the fact, or what? What did you do? Did you, yeah, did I just you turn off the USA game out of spite. Uh, I well, I have a one-year-old daughter, so I turned it off out of like, all right, well, I guess I can't watch the end of the game, so I'm just gonna go to bed now. But, um, <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, I was like, what, what am I gonna do? I was gonna watch the ninth inning of this game. It was ridiculous. Yeah, there have been a lot of weird takes and, and decisions with the World Baseball Classic, but I, I found myself, in, even again, even though I haven't been able to watch as much as I've wanted just because we're working on the Top 300 update, I'm seeing draft players, I'm obviously focused on the draft, I'm not really doing much in terms of coverage for BA with the World Baseball Classic, but just as a fan of the game, it's something that I want to be 
watching and paying attention to and seeing. I've enjoyed it more than I ever have in the past. I'm not sure if that's simply because I've paid more attention to it this year than previous years or if there is more energy in general around the event. It certainly feels like that to me, but again, that it could be a case of like I'm just paying more attention to it and so I'm noticing that that energy. Um, what's your perspective on it and, and maybe potentially becoming more of a prominent event? Because I, I was glad to hear, I think Kyle recently wrote a post on the site basically talking about Mike Trout and Mookie Betts, how how much they lo- have loved being a part of the World Baseball Classic and how they were essentially encouraging other players to take part if they get the opportunity to represent their country. I thought that was really cool to see. I think it it probably goes a long way when you have two really faces of the game and, and arguably the best players uh, of the generation uh, for Americans saying this, like saying to take part in the event. And I, I do think if we get more U.S. stars, uh, it will only increase the the excitement around the event. Maybe, maybe we'll reach a point where ludicrous takes about just canceling it because people get hurt, um, fade away a little bit if it becomes even bigger. Yeah, I love the WBC. I mean, and, and on the Team USA stuff, I mean, did you see or have you seen stuff about how just like criticism of the USA and especially after that loss to to Mexico? Yeah, I've seen some of the criticism and I'm curious what you think about the criticism, but I, I actually don't mind it because I, I do think if there was no criticism after Team USA played how they did, it would maybe be worse of a signal about people not caring. I think it's good that the Team USA is held to a high standard and there is an expectation of, of how they're going to play and honestly of the, the quality of player they're going to get on the roster. I think it's certainly it's very clear that, that they did not get the best players they could on this team. I, I think the bullpen is great. I think the starting lineup is great. You, it's hard to ask for more in those two areas, but when you look at what Team Japan is throwing out there, are we calling them Team Japan or just the Japanese team? It, it feels weird to say Team. We say Team USA constantly, but saying Team Japan just felt weird there. I guess it's pretty normal. Um, I guess it's unusual to see them with such a dominant starting rotation and then look at ours and wonder what could be if we had more buy-in from some of the top U.S. pitchers. Um, there were some comments made from from some players. Max Scherzer, I thought, had a lot of comments that made sense about why he wasn't taking part. And it's hard to knock him for not taking part, but at the same time, it's very, very cool to see the the starting rotation that the Japanese team has right now. So I'm not bothered by the criticism. I think it's probably a good thing that they're held to this high standard. I, I didn't see anything that I felt was like too far in terms of criticism, but maybe I missed that. What are, what are your thoughts? So I I think, yeah, the games themselves are great. Where I take issue with is what I think is a pretty hysterical overreaction to extremely small sample sizes from baseball media and the need to create, uh, you know, stories or narratives over losing what ultimately was one game (laughs) in pool play or, or even two games. And and saying it's because the players are not trying, I think is is pretty cringy. I didn't I didn't see that specifically. I also think that doesn't make any sense. Just because you don't get the result that 
you're hoping for and you want to, it certainly doesn't mean you're not trying everyone on the field is trying no matter no matter of try will make the the chinese team on paper equivalent to some of these other teams you know, it doesn't mean that those guys aren't trying it's just their their max effort try is an 83 mile per hour fastball it's just it's a little bit different but i do think this happens every year in the playoffs as well i think we tend to as as just people place narratives on things to try and explain what's happening and and make a clear story out of something that maybe isn't necessarily a story maybe we're um, kind of rewriting history a little bit and and adding characters to things that don't necessarily need it and i also think maybe it, it's accentuated in the world baseball classic because there is such a focus on single game outcomes whereas in the postseason we at least at least deeper into the postseason you at least have longer series where that's harder to do um but i think it's it's very natural for sports writers to create narratives for things that maybe um don't entirely line up with, with how we saw it uh, well, play from our perspective the problem is that saying, hey, this is baseball, we've been following baseball our whole lives, so we all know a lot of things can happen in any one game that probably just does not lend itself to compelling writing or television analysis and yeah. maybe, maybe unfortunately in our case, a compelling podcast, but great, well, great teams lose to bad teams all the time. It's, it's a lot less fun to say, you know, sometimes this just happens than to write some compelling narrative as to this these are the reasons this all happened and this is why rather than, you know, sometimes you just get outplayed. Yeah, I mean, look, the Washington Nationals had the worst record in baseball last year, 107 losses. The Dodgers had the best record. They won 111 games. And when they played each other last year, the Nationals won 3, the Dodgers won 3, right? Like they went into LA and they beat them two out of three games. So, and you can obviously make the point that, Hey, 162 game season is different than a tournament where you can get eliminated after a few games. That's true, but it doesn't change the underlying truth that when you have two teams that have major league caliber players on both sides, a lot of times the underdog will win, especially if they're going to play multiple games, you would think people who know baseball would know, better but again like we see this every year during the first week of the season if you know if people panic if the if the Yankees start one and four or three and five and I, I do think like you said it's it's, very, it's a very understandable and very human reaction to the outcomes of the tournament uh, I think it's just our operating software as human beings that predisposes us to react that way because we're just wired to create these types of stories uh to explain things in our own brains but it's also not really a rational analysis of yeah. of the events on the field it's kind of crazy how often we have to fight back about about being irrational like we're just naturally not very rational for a lot of different reasons in, in a lot of scenarios so it's always worth trying to remind ourselves that, that we need to think this through a little bit more, maybe. Um, and, and Mexico is a really good team to like, yeah. they beat, they beat the USA 11, five. I mean, their lineup is, I'll just run down their lineup right now. Yeah. Randy Rosarena. All right. Two, mm -hmm. Basically a three war player last year, Alex Verdugo, one, one war, Joey Manassas, you know, one war in 56 games last year. Rowdy Telez, 
0.8. I'm going by baseball reference. Uh, Isaac Paredes, 2.5. Luis Urias, 3.1. Alec Thomas, 1.4. Austin Barnes, 0.7 in a part-time role last year, 62 games. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good lineup. Like, it's not, yeah, <laughs> it's not you know, a, a lineup full of you know, amateur players they're going against. And then the starting pitcher they're facing, I mean, Patrick Sandoval had a 291 ERA last year in 27 starts. He was a three and a half win. He pitched really well. Pitcher, yeah. I mean, this is not a Florida State League team that Mexico is running out there. It's not a college team, although although now I kind of wonder how LSU would do if they were <laughs> in, yeah. in the WBC. But, like, this is they a team. fresh f- probably. Uh, but like in a given game, like if you have Paul Skeens in a given uh, game, no, but yeah, I think it, you you make a good point. And I do think that in baseball specifically, it's much harder for true talent to show itself in a one game sample compared to most other sports. Certainly most other sports that I'm aware of. What is the other sport actually that takes the longest amount of games for kind of the the talent to show itself out in a, in a given sample size, NFL and NBA. I mean, it's, it's like a few games. It's one game in the NFL. It's, I mean, there's, there's a reason the NBA playoffs are significantly less interesting than MLB in terms of just, you don't, you don't know who's going to win. Whereas the favorites in the NBA generally are always winning in the first round. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the talent gap, among the top teams is very close, which makes for a lot of competitive games overall. Maybe we can get to a a World Baseball Classic in a few years where that's true of the entire field. It is still a bit jarring for for a few matchups. But it's been fun to watch. Uh, We're we're solidly into quarterfinals with most of the teams, all the pools now, right? Yeah, yeah. So... I guess at this point, do you feel confident in a favorite for the event? We talked prior to the WBC kicking off that the DR, Japan, and Team USA felt like the three favorites. Uh, Obviously, with that Puerto Rico-Dominican Republic game, DR is is the most surprising team to not advance out of the pools uh, in that group of death we had there. Do you have a, a favorite now, given what we've seen? I mean, it feels... It feels like a tall challenge to beat Japan on any given day at this point. Their their pitching staff. I asked this in the Slack. I was like, number one, is it credible to call this Japanese starting rotation one of the best of all time? And if not, like, is it even in the conversation? And I feel like the fact that I could even like ask that question is pretty telling about the talent. I mean, Kyle basically said there are three aces in the rotation as well as a number two. That would that would go up with most of the best rotations we've seen, even if maybe there are some others you would take over it. I think it's probably Japan just because of the factors you said. But then, you know, I think the USA and Venezuela are just as talented, if not more so, especially in the lineup. But they have to play each other. So, yeah. so some somebody's got to go. Their run differential is plus 30 after group play, Japan. I don't know if that includes the... Italy game today. I'm just looking at the scoreboard on our our website. Yeah, I mean, some of it. I, I think they just had a softer schedule compared to some of these other clubs. But even so, just the path to the championship game mm-hmm. for Japan seems 
like a, a less rigorous road than what the USA or, or Venezuela have ahead of them or, you know, are the other clubs still in it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's all the world baseball classic thoughts I had. Uh, I'm curious to see what the narratives will be next week. When is the championship game? Championship game. will be Tuesday, the 21st in Miami. I feel like, man, this is such a condensed event. It, it, ha- it starts and then it basically finishes in a matter of weeks. It is. I yeah. I mean, it's longer. I know there's a lot of limitations in the schedule. Actually, actually, that's one thing that I did want to ask you. I don't know if we talked about this previously. Did we talk about it on the last podcast about the ideal? We've, we've talked so much in the Slack about it. I'm just not sure what we brought up on the podcast. Um, what your ideal time for the World Baseball Classic would be if there is a, a great time to have the event? I think now is is the right time to do it. I mean, if you put it in the middle of the season you're going to lose like I, I don't know how you do that really unless you really want to split up you would, the time yeah you probably it, it have just, to shorten the regular season and expand the all-star break right if that's the thinking that you put it in the all-star break every four years yeah I, I just think it's too much of a challenge I think it's I think it's good the way it is right now like any time of year you do it there's going to be trade-offs if you want to do it after the season uh, I don't think that's the ideal time to do it too when everybody's kind of run down or has shut, or if you're not in the playoffs, like you've probably shut things down at that point. So, I also think in just in terms of a fan interest standpoint, there's less competition for other major sports now. And we're, we're at a point where people are really itching for baseball. And so I think having the world baseball classic as like, here's your, if, if you're not a fan of the World Baseball Classic, here's your appetizer for the regular season, and you might be surprised by how much you enjoy it. Whereas if it was after the World Series, I could see a lot of people who who, who maybe that, that same demographic, basically, baseball fans who maybe haven't been as invested as in the WBC, basically saying, you know, like, I just followed the whole regular season and just watched the World Series. I'm baseballed out. NFL's getting rolling. NBA's starting. Like, it, it seems like this is a much better time in the calendar just to attract interest from, from a fan perspective, not even considering player questions and, and availability of, of pitchers or hitters and whatnot. Yeah. Any time of year you're going to do it, there's going to be a drawback to it. And I think this is, this is the best time of year to, to have the event. All right, uh, let's move into some news that we had over the past few weeks, or I guess in between our last podcast. That's how I track time now. It's not weeks or days. It's what has happened since the last time me and you chatted on the pod, Ben. Um, We've got two extensions that I felt like were notable and worth discussing here. The first is Corbin Carroll, which I think actually happened after the other signing, but but I'll mention Corbin Carroll first because he's the number two prospect on our board. It's a bigger dollars amount. He signed an extension with the Diamondbacks for an eight-year, one hundred eleven million dollar extension um, that could bump up twenty-eight more million dollars with a club option in twenty thirty-one. It's just under fourteen million uh, in average annual value. Then we have Cabert Ruiz, who signed an extension with the Nationals. It's an eight-year, fifty million dollar extension, six point two five average annual value. That goes through 2030 with two club options, $12 million option in 31 and a $14 million option in 32. Um, Corbin Carroll's deal goes through 2030 with an option for 31. I mean, I don't know if you have thoughts on these. I felt like these were both two good deals for both player and club on both ends. And 
I think it's good to see that a lot of teams are starting to pay young players who are impacting their team sooner in their career. Obviously, the teams are getting a benefit here by taking a bit of a, a discount on some of those free agent years. And you're probably, if you play to the expectations, you're probably going to be saving a lot of money. Uh, from the player's perspective, you get uh, some certainty, even if you're giving a little bit of a discount. I think I was surprised at first when I saw the Cabert Ruiz total money. I mean, a player like him getting paid $9 million in 2029 and 2030 could wind up looking pretty crazy um, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on these two extensions crazy low or crazy high crazy low crazy low just given like what the what a win above replacement is worth on the free agent market and I, I guess it's probably not fair to compare this to free agent deals because the entire reason that both the team and the player are doing this is to avoid getting to that point but I mean, I, I still think Cabert Ruiz can be very solid. He's he's already been an above-average hitter at the big league level for a catcher, even if it's not above-average uh, in terms of, of league-wide production. Um, yeah, I, I just it seems like a surprisingly low amount. For Carroll, it felt kind of more in line with what some other players have signed. Um, of a player of his stature, it jumps up. I mean, seeing it jump up to 28 in 2029 and 2030 makes it feel a little more less, less jarring to me, I would say. But again, I think both these deals are smart for both sides. Yeah. I certainly understand why the teams do them from, for both of those deals. I think Carol is going to ultimately, because I think he's going to be a perennial all-star type player will ultimately end up having left quite a bit of money on the table for himself but he's also guaranteeing himself 111 million dollars <laughs> so if something goes wrong if he has a you know a Grady Sizemore type injury in his mid 20s or something like that um you're you yeah, you're you're sacrificing some upside and the upside could be significant but mm-hmm the safety and the guarantee of having a hundred million dollars guaranteed to come your way, mm-hmm. you know, barring any like things that, well, uh, you know, get you suspended or, uh, anything like that. It's a little mm-hmm. bit different, but, but otherwise to guarantee yourself a hundred million dollars is like li- obviously life changing generation changing money and the difference between, you know, hey, Carol signed for, you know, good money as a first round pick. So I'm sure he's not, you know, he's not a struggling minor leaguer Let me by any up. means. I think he probably signed for around $3 million. I'll pull it up and just see what the actual number is. But yeah. he signed for more than Kbert Rees did when he was signed. Yeah. I I mean, signed these guys can spend through that money pretty fast. <laughs> Carol signed for three, just under $4 million, uh, 3.7. Right. But the, you know, how much more are you going to be able to do for yourself? between a hundred million and 300 million compared to, you know, 2 million to a hundred million. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I very much understand why, why the players take that deal. And for, for Arizona, it's, it's makes all the sense in the world to be able to lock in a player like that at a very reasonable price and secure yes. 
deals and and have a club option or excuse me secure years beyond what you already have for team control and then be able to tack on a club option at the end of it for a guy who could be a you know a consistent what four plus win type guy for you yeah i think that's what i would expect him to be that's what his projections have him being for the i mean foreseeable future for the majority of this contract certainly why the reason i i kind of still like it for carol is because even while he might be giving up um some dollars in the last three years if if the club option is taken up and you would assume the scenario where he feels bad about taking this deal is the scenario where the club um accepts the option even if that happens, he's still going to be a free agent again, entering his age 31 season. And given some of the contracts we've seen some star players sign at the big league level in their early 30s, I still think he has a chance for another massive payday if he's the player that we all expect. So I don't know that, I mean, to your point, the, the, first, the first couple million are more important than the one hundred and. 50th compared to your 120th million I guess the, the the difference in what that does for your life matters more on the front end I, I just think that it's it's really not a it, maybe if you're again if, if you're like massively rational and you think in terms of numbers and, and no emotion at all you're like oh well I just threw 30 million dollars away well the, the guarantee means something before you have really fully established yourself in the big leagues there are players who who look great and perform great early, and it just don't pan out how we expect them to. Everyone expects Corbin Carroll to be a star for a long time. I'm curious how you think about that skill set aging. I would think he does a lot of things that would age pretty well. Um, but yeah, I, I like it from from his perspective and the team's perspective. I, I think this makes it easier to potentially build around Corbin Carroll too. Obviously, that's the goal with all of these deals. That's what the Braves have done with a lot of their players. If you can develop homegrown stars, secure them to deals, it just makes it significantly easier to build around those players when they're reaching their peak years. So 2025, 2026, if the D-backs aren't competitive, um, they won't have financial restrictions to blame, you would think. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's entirely rational for Carroll to take that deal to because the, you know, the marginal value of of the money you're going to have between a hundred million dollars to three hundred million dollars is much lower than <laughs> securing that first hundred million dollars. Obviously, I'm not speaking from personal experience. Well, I heard what's... about I heard about your last negotiation with Baseball America, Ben. I thought the reported figure was significantly more than what Carol got. Well, we, we, we are we're in arbitration right now over oh, over that. I'm going year to year on on that. I'm betting on myself. At the arbitration hearings, are they using outdated methods of, of evaluation like word count? Is that why all of your pieces are, are really inflated and not edited down for clarity? Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta fire my agent, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, would you be any more concerned about handing out a deal like this to a catcher like Kibert Ruiz? Obviously, there's a difference in, in prospect um, pedigree right now. Although I don't know, maybe it wasn't too long ago that Kibert Ruiz was one of the top catching prospects in baseball. What are your thoughts on looking at that one eight years down the road? No, and if anything. Yeah, and Ruiz is not the talent that Carroll is either. So it, it's less money, and frankly, uh, where where else are the Nationals going to be spending money? 
in the next couple of years. So like, I don't see them going out and making a big splash in free agency to get themselves from what a hundred and seven loss team to a hundred and two lost. Like they're not, they're not going out and spending a lot of money in free agency. So if you have a young player like that, who's not a superstar, but is a, a good young player and you can secure extra years of team control or club options on that player with, like you said, a lot of upside where it's certainly not a prohibitive cost and $9 million for K Ruiz annually in his late 20s or even less than that before yeah, then, I mean, but it's, it's six over the length of the deal it's 6.25 annually it goes 1 million then 6 million in 2024 5 million from 2025 to 27 7 million in 2028 and then 9 million between 2029 and 2030 which that i think this could be a massive bargain for the nationals i, I don't love this one quite as much from from ruiz's perspective because i still think he could pop and i mean what is the level of offensive production he needs to show to be worth significantly more than this it's it's really not that much no but i mean there's also some chance that he regresses and turns into a backup catcher i mean i think it's very likely that caber ruiz will at the minimum well i shouldn't say at the minimum but i think it's very likely he will stick around and have a 10 plus year big league career where even if he doesn't take the next step forward he could at least be a a backup catcher who's always you know somebody's always going to sign him for some type of role Mm -hmm. over over the next decade or so uh but that doesn't necessarily guarantee you 50 million dollars and he and he was obviously also not a big bonus signing coming out of venezuela either i mean he has some time in the big leagues like i think he's probably doing all right but again to guarantee yourself that first 50 million dollars yeah I I very much understand why why the players do it. I don't think it's an irrational move on uh on his part by any means. Yeah. And I, I think both of these teams are interesting for a number of reasons because for these signings, for the Kate Cavalli injury that happened, what they're gonna look like on the field in twenty twenty three. I think both of us would be a little bit more excited about the D backs than the Nationals. They're obviously a little bit further behind in, in their rebuild. Um, so I'm curious what you think of these teams moving forward, thoughts on the farm system, and maybe we did, we can focus on the Nationals um, a little bit more. I think they're fascinating because of the prospects they have at the top of their system, the fact that the rebuild has a few more years before we can really see how it, how it pans out. There's a lot more interesting decisions that are going to be made in the next few years with them. They're picking at the top of the draft this year, second overall in the first round, and then they're actually picking first in each subsequent round with the new draft lottery rules. I think it's a fantastic draft this year. So they're very fun, even though most of their fans are probably as lukewarm or hesitant about that the on-field product that they've been in years entering 2023. But for us, we talk about prospects. We, we spend so much time thinking about farm systems and player development. They're one of the more interesting organizations in baseball. Yeah, I mean, they have one elite prospect in James Wood. He's number 11 on our top 100. And then, you know, like what we were talking about, the Carroll. Once him, once Carroll, once Gunnar Henderson, once those guys graduate in April, he's moving to the top 10. And Andrew Painter also is injured. I mean, he's going to move ahead of 
painter with the injury. So we're talking about soon to be number eight prospect in baseball. And then we'll, we'll do another major re-rank in, uh, at the end of April, just based on new, newer information. But, you know, with, with all of the caveats that come with a player who has not played above low A, he does look pretty spectacular. <laughs> I mean, outstanding raw power, draws walks, uh, taps into that power in games with much less swing and miss than uh, we were expecting coming out of high school where he did have issues in that department. So he's he's an outstanding prospect. Um, and And then you have Robert Hassel, who I like quite a bit. Elijah Green, another very good prospect. So you have two more young outfielders, albeit very different types of players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Green is a lot more physical and explosive and more spectacular, uh, whereas Hassel doesn't have the same high-end speed or raw power, but better barrel control, uh, better pure feel for hitting, and uh, obviously is higher up the major league ladder, so there's more proximity to uh, the big leagues. Um, yeah, they've got a lot of fun guys at the top. I like how they've gone for upside and tools and physicality and athleticism in the draft. They've been picking in a range where they can access some of those talents in, in 2021. I don't think I expected Brady House to fall to them, but he wasn't super far away from that pick. Just on our board, there was a, a solid group of, of eight or so players that I felt like had a really good blend of of upside and ability, and, and I think we could... I mean, there's a lot of volatility in this system, I think, still, just given the given how top-end heavy it is, given how, how much of the farm is reliant on players like Elijah Green and like Brady House who have big questions to go along with their big tools and upside. They still need to answer and still need to prove at higher levels of the minor leagues. Like you said, James Wood has been a really, really good hitter so far. I've consistently liked him. All the guys at the top, I feel like, are players who I've liked quite a bit coming out of the draft, and they're going to be able to add to that in whichever demographic they want, really. If they want to go hitting, there should be a, a an electric hitting prospect to take at number two this year. If they want to go pitching, they'll probably be getting a better pitching prospect than we've seen in the last several years, um, whether that's a Paul Skeens or a Chase Dolander. So I think that there's a lot to be excited about in terms of the next wave of talent for the Nationals. And picking at 40, they should wind up with a better prospect there than Jake Bennett from last year, just because I think this class is is so much better. Um, But yeah, I'll be curious to see if Brady House can rebound from his injury-plagued 2022 season. I still believe in him as an athlete, as a hitter. He he had a really long track record of hitting as an underclass high school player. He, he's an athletic freak. I think we might even sleep on how good of an athlete Brady House is because he's surrounded with other athletes in the national system, and Elijah Green is just this complete outlier in that regard. But mm-hmm. Brady is a fantastic athlete, too. He, he moves exceptionally well for his size. The power is really impressive. Um, so I really hope that, that he gets healthy and shows – a little bit more like the prospect we expected him to be coming out of the 2021 draft. And I, I certainly haven't written him off, but it, it's the same thing where you kind of just need to see it. Um, but there's a lot at the top here that, that you should be getting excited about if you're a Nationals fan. Yeah, I, I agree that there's things to be excited about at the top of the system. Um, you know, the 
Green, Hassel, Wood, all top 100 prospects. And then obviously Cade Cavalli was their fourth top 100 guy. Big fastball, sitting 94-97, touching 99. The curveball when it's on can be plus, if if not better, and he just throws it so hard in the mid-80s. So there's a lot of power behind that pitch. I think the changeup is a good pitch too. It's it's pretty firm off the fastball, but it has really good life, uh, good fading action that he's able to generate, and that makes it a, a weapon for him. Uh, the fastball command still needs to improve. And then, look, you know, last year he was shut down at the end of the year with the uh, shoulder inflammation, and now we have a new injury situation here where he's going to miss all of 2023. Uh, so he's not going to be able to handle a full season starter workload in 2024. Not that I think that the Nationals are targeting 2024 for a World Series run, but um, you know you're talking about his first full season at full strength being when he's 2000. You know, or in, what in 2025 when he's Five. 26 years old. So um, you know, that's not terrible for a pitcher, but yeah, it's not a deal, obviously. No, so I I think that's the thing is you have a lot of question marks after that. Again, like, you know, Brady House, I like the pick, but I mean, he's he's going to have to prove that last year was just an aberration where the back injury was masking his true talent level cuz mm-hmm. he did not have a good year. So I I think this is a big year for him. Yes. Um Harwin Susana, uh who they got from the Padres in the Soto deal, I I like him quite a bit. You don't get to use the phrase an easy 103 <laughs> too often. Um, so that's that's good. So there's you know there's quite a bit of talent in the top 10. Uh, but it's really once you get outside the top 10, the depth falls off pretty hard. Now, in, in fairness, I think we have to include like, you know, Mackenzie Gore and C.J. Abrams are not prospect eligible anymore but they're still young they nationals count for the young wave of talent that you're expecting this rebuild to be built around yeah they're they going to be our farm system ranking yeah they're going to be under team control for the next what five six years or so so mm-hmm. um you know I, I have to at least acknowledge that but really again it's more the the depth of the system still needs quite a bit of work when when they're in this rebuilding stage that they are right now yes definitely and i think this this 2023 draft is going to be critical for them they're picking the highest they have picked since 20 2009 and 2010 when they picked one number one overall in back-to-back years obviously that was steven strasberg and bryce harper um that worked out pretty well for them uh, there's there's no Bryce Harper or Steven Strasburg talent in this year's draft class, but I, I think it might be the best that I've covered since 2018. Um, not I'm not saying that that Dylan Cruz or White Langford is better than Adley Rushman, but in terms of the top group of college players in this year's class, there's a real case to be made that it is the best since in in the last six years at least and they're picking two. So they're going to benefit from having a good cluster of players at the top of the draft rather than like an outlier, like a player with a ton of separation from one versus two that maybe they wouldn't benefit from anyways. Um, so I think this, this draft is critical for them building up some of that depth. 
Um, what they do on the international market will be key for them as well. What is your sense of how they've done on that side of things in the last few years? And do you like some of the recent classes they've signed? Well, on the draft side, I think that's where they're going to need to turn things around, especially um, because, yeah, you mentioned obviously Strasburg, Harper, uh, 2019, or excuse me, 2009, 2010. Um, Hard to miss on those guys, right? Yeah, it's really just a byproduct of having the number one overall pick in a year when we have the best (laughs) pitching prospects and the best. Just start working on your second round pick at that point that year is probably what they did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the best teenage amateur prospect to come along in quite a while. But, I mean, you know, then the years after that, they get Anthony Rendon, Lucas Giolito. Um, they actually had a second first-round pick in 2011, and they took Alex Meyer. So, I mean, look, Giolito, Rendon, Giolito, that's that's pretty impressive. But then their first-round picks since then. a little tougher, yeah. Yeah, it's been rough. And with the obvious point that they're picking in the 15 to 30 range and mostly in that 25 to 30 range a lot of years. But their first-round picks, I mean, 2014, Eric Fetty, 2015, they didn't have one. But they had two in 2016, Carter Keboom, Dane Dunning, 2017, Seth Romero, 2018, Mason Denneberg, 2019, Jackson Rutledge. Uh, Not great. (laughs) Not great. And then it's not even just the first-round picks because they're second-rounders in that time. Blake Perkins, Andrew Stevenson, Sheldon Noyce, uh, Will Crow, Tim Cate, their third-rounders, Jackson Reitz, Rhett Weissman, Jesus Lazardo, that's a good one. Uh, Nick, is it Raquet? Uh, Ra- Ra- Nick Raquet. Raquet. Reed Schaller. Drew Mendoza. Fourth rounders. Robbie Dickey. Mariano Rivero Jr. Nick Banks. Cole Freeman. Jake Irvin. Matt Cronin. Fifth rounds. <laughs> Dr- Drew Van Orden. Taylor Hearn. Daniel Johnson, Brigham Hill, Gage Canning, Tyler Dyson. I mean, you can see why there's maybe a lack of depth <laughs> in in the system right now. Yeah. Yeah, you want to do better than that. You want to hit on players a little bit more than you had. Obviously, they, they haven't had a great uh, run of it in the last few years. Um, so we'll see. You obviously have to you have to pick the right players, then you have to develop them. So it's, it's a tricky game, and... Hopefully 2023, we uh, don't end up thinking about similar to some of those years you just ran off for the Nationals. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What what direction do you want to go from here, Ben? Do you want to talk about the, uh, the draft class, more Nationals thoughts? Yeah, what do you, do you... Do you think, let's say, let's say Dylan Cruz goes number one mm-hmm. to the Pirates... Does there seem like an obvious guy either for you who on talent should be the number two guy or somebody who you think fits the mold for the Nationals and the type of guy that they would go for typically? I actually think that all of the guys who who are going to probably be in consideration for the Nationals fit their typical M.O. really well. Um 
Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, Paul Skeens, Chase Dolander, particularly the first three players I just mentioned, are very physical, big guys with tools. If you look at a lot of the Nationals' picks, they're really good athletes. Those traits seem to be pretty common with a lot of their first-rounders and and almost all of the last three or four, even five first-round picks they've had. So I think that just from a philosophy perspective, they they make sense. Like if if Cruz goes one, like you said, Wyatt Langford is a a big, powerful, fast hitter at Florida. Paul Skeens is six foot six, massive frame, massive stuff to go along with it. That kind of checks some of the boxes that it, it seems like they really like to have in the draft. I think the Nationals feel like one of the one of the teams that prioritizes physicality the most um, mm-hmm. that, that I can think of off the top of my head. So in that sense, all of those players fit. And I don't know that there is, at least right now, a very obvious talent gap, maybe even from one to two. I mean, for me, Dylan Cruz would be the pick, but I've already talked to some scouts who like Wyatt Langford either as much or maybe even a tick better than Dylan Cruz. I think there are some people who think Paul Skeens could be a very defensible choice at 1-1. We can get into the risks of pitchers versus the risks of hitters in this range. Um, but you you haven't seen a pitcher with the sort of upside that Paul Skeens is bringing you since at least 2017 on the college side. And, and I think you probably would go back further than that. Um, so I think they're going to be in a good position regardless of how the rest of the college season goes and how those players perform um, to, to feel good about whatever player is available, regardless of what the Pirates do up top. And obviously the last time the Pirates were picking in a draft class 1-1 where there wasn't a consensus top player, um, they weren't afraid to go with a player like Henry Davis and, and take a deal for $2 million under slot and, and move that money around. So the Nationals could easily find themselves in a position where the best player who they, who they see in the draft class is available for them at number two. Um, and, and I would imagine they're more likely to just take the best player than play the financial games. Yeah, Skeens, big body, physical power pitcher seems very nationalsy to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the top college pitchers that we've seen get picked over the last six years. It's what Jack Leiter, Kumar Rocker, um, Max Meyer. Casey Mize, Brendan McKay, Kyle Wright, and now we have Skeens and Chase Dolander. Mm-hmm. I mean, would would you put? I mean, like compared to Lighter and obviously Rocker, yeah, kind of had a hiccup his <laughs> his year his final year. But yeah. um, would you put Skeens ahead of Lighter and Rocker? Definitely. I don't think that one's particularly close, to be honest. I think that the Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter were both very, very good. I think they were also probably more famous than... I mean, maybe that's not the case with Paul Skeens with this LSU team, but it certainly feels like Kamar Rocker was one of the more famous players that we had in college baseball in a while, and that certainly added to just the, the noise around him. Throughout the process, even before Kamar Rocker's arm health questions... Most people were saying in that 2021 draft year that that both Leiter and Kamar Rocker 
were more middle of the rotation arms than, than top of the rotation arms. That's the feedback that I was getting. Um, that's not the case with how people talk about Paul Skeens and, and Chase Dolander. And in the mock draft that was posted today, our first version of the 2023 mock draft, we had a, a scout basically went through the first round with me and made alternating picks. And they made the point that if you just look at this year's college groups of the top four players that we've been discussing here, Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, Paul Skeens, Chase Dolander, and you compare those players to the top college players in the last two draft classes, this person made the point that you might take all four ahead of any of the college players from the other draft classes. It could be like a clean sweep there. And they certainly would be more distributed to the top end of that picking range than the 2021 or the 2022 college classes. Um, so just looking at, at who those players are, I have pitchers filtered on, on the BA draft database, but I'll go back to just overall the class. So the first college players that were taken in 2021 would be Henry Davis, Jack Leiter, Colton Kowser. I think all four players, and again, this is always tricky when there's some natural hindsight bias that, that you can't account for, but I even think like putting myself back into that picture in 2021, the profiles of all four of these players we're talking about now are quite a bit more exciting than all three of those players in, in 2021. Um, so those are the top five college players, college players taken among the top five picks in 2021. In 2022, the college players were Jacob Berry at six, Kate Horton at seven, Brooks Lee at eight, and Gavin Cross at nine. Again, I think all four of them you would take before Barry and Horton and Lee, even if you if you prefer Lee to Jacob Barry. I honestly think that the Jacob Wilson, who we haven't even talked about, is more is is more similar to a player like Brooks Lee than the top of the class. And and Jacob Wilson hasn't really featured in the like one A elite tier of this class just yet. So I think this college class is phenomenal. And I'm starting to get some feedback from the industry that it's it's really strong as well. So teams picking in the top four this year, congratulations. And to the Oakland A's, I'm really sorry that the draft lottery happened this year because you would have been picking two and now you're picking six. So that's unfortunate. The, yeah, I think, you know, rocker was rocker and lighter were much more famous, I think, than skeins. I think that's going to probably pick up for skeins. Yeah. Now that because he's both of them were first round talents out of high school where skeins that wasn't the case well and rocker had had that they had rocker's performance uh with vanderbilt the game against duke yeah he had the no hitter 19 strikeouts Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then jack Leiter has the bloodlines bloodlines. yes so I, i but i think just in terms of of arm talent and like the profiles that we're getting from the industry on on these guys i think it's pretty, from my perspective. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who would, who are maybe lighter on, so on to these speak. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I I think for me it's pretty it's pretty confidently I would take both Dolander and uh, Paul Skeens because they're also more classic. And I'm curious how much it, it feels like you don't care as much about this, but I know that I've already heard they're they're much more classic college pitching profiles just from the sense of looking at their deliveries and looking at their pitch mixes. Some of these players have had a few questions or they did things a little bit differently, or they were like really heavy usage breaking ball pitchers like rocker 
where they threw a splitter like Casey Mize, who's not really a guy that we've talked about so much in this conversation, but in terms of looking at the best college pitchers in the last few years, I just think there are not very many questions with with either Skeens or Dolander to the same degree that some of these other pitchers had questions. Now, that's not to say these guys won't get nitpicked and that they're perfect pitching prospects. I think there probably is some question about Skeens' command moving forward. He's, he's dominated non-conference play, but in conference play, um, he's, he's probably going to have to be a little bit more refined with the command of the slider. And I think for for Chase Dolander, while he looks great on the mound, the delivery is awesome. The fastball command has historically been great. The slider hasn't been quite as sharp so far this year. So there are still questions, but man, they're, re- they're really explosive pitching prospects. I think front of the rotation upside, um, yeah, I would be happy with them. Even if you know, I would be bummed to miss out on bats like Cruz or Wyatt Langford at the very top. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'll be curious to see what happens when they get into conference play, like you said, and then maybe Skeen starts to get picked apart a little bit more. I mean, I mean, Jack Leiter is, and he was just a sophomore and obviously basically missed his freshman year because of COVID, except for, you know, a handful of starts. But, um, you know, he struck out 179 guys in 100. 10 innings and then he had some like hiccup starts within there that I think mm-hmm. probably raised some more question marks if I guess if you want to call it that yeah uh, he got within a little his season. prone kind of in the middle of the season uh, I think there were a few games where he let up like five or six home runs something like that I know that was a question there was always questions about curveball versus slider with him as well um, but it'll be good for these guys to to have these questions and see if they answer them when you're at the very top, it's it's natural to get nitpicked a little bit more than you would at the back of the first round or, or later in the draft. Um, but yeah, I still I think coming into this draft class, I thought it was one of the more exciting groups that that I've been able to cover, and that's only been reinforced so far. Maybe maybe SEC play getting started will throw a bunch of cold water on that. But when you've got a guy like Dylan Cruz who enters conference play hitting over 500, and a guy like Wyatt Langford, who has a ton of power and is also hitting close to 500, and these guys who are striking out 10 batters a game, it's it's fun to watch. Yeah, when you have uh, yeah, when you're hitting 519 with twice as many walks as strikeouts and more extra base hits than strikeouts as Dylan Cruz is, that's not a not a bad way to start, to start your year. Do you I think? Th- okay. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I- I'm curious if a high school player enters this conversation as we get further into the calendar and, and Max Clark can start playing a little bit. Walker Jenkins, he's already gotten his season started, but it's not a massive sample of games so far. I am curious if one of these two players, because I think they're the best contenders from the high school side, if they will jump into the mix uh, and challenge for number one consideration uh, and just how that will play out. Because both of those guys are, are really fascinating. They're interesting to compare and contrast. I got to see Walker Jenkins last night, and he looked great. I mean, he wasn't playing the best competition. The pitching was was pretty light. But he doubled in his first A.B., then he hit this no-doubt home run in his second A.B., walked in the third at-bat, flew out in the fourth, just looked looked the part. I mean, he, he looked like a completely different animal out there on the high school field in uh, at South Brunswick High. Uh, I love the swing. I love his power. 
Um, so I wonder if those guys and Clark, when he gets started, because I've already heard some good things about how his swing has progressed over the offseason. I know you're a Max Clark guy, Ben. I think I'm probably going to be Team Jenkins for the for the sake of this class and the sake of this podcast moving forward. I, I do wonder where they will kind of wind up in this mix. Because um, it does seem like teams would probably tend to prefer the college player with tools versus the high school player that maybe just don't have as much conviction on, on the hit tool. But they're they're both really explosive too. Yeah, well, that's where I think you said, you know, the scout was talking about and your mock draft was talking about how, you know, it's a tough year for Oakland to slide in the draft. But I, I think they're going to get uh, or have the chance. <laughs> I don't know who they're going to take, but they have a chance to get a, a pretty special player with that pick in part because of, yeah, those – those two high school guys and Clark and Jenkins. I mean, I've, I've been saying this going back like two years now, like flip a coin on those two guys because they're the head of the class for the high schoolers this year. And, and they're both tremendous prospects where I, I think they, you know, they should be in the one, one conversation. And even if you like Dylan Cruz, at, at one, I think you could make a case for either of those prep outfielders right behind him. And, you know, if you're going for a premium position, I think Max Clark has a much higher likelihood of playing center field compared to Dylan Cruz. Now, he doesn't have the track record of Cruz in the SEC, but the track record that he does have so far is pretty good. Uh, tremendous feel for making contact it's not like he's light on tools or athleticism himself I think there's a question of like how much game power is going to be in there but I'm a big believer in that coming around mm-hmm. kind of like we, you know we've already seen with Corbin Carroll for example like and, and Clark think, is much more advanced physically than Carroll was at the same age so yeah so I, I think that's I think it's in there and you can certainly see it if you watch him take BP and watch him really let loose so, yeah, I, I think he could fit in there. And then especially if you were, you know, you're seeing the pitcher injuries, not just this year, but historically from just the injury risk with that group of players. And you want to say, yeah, maybe I would lean more toward uh, Max Clark or Walker Jenkins over Skeens. Uh, or Chase Dolander, as talented as those guys are, there's just going to be less injury risk with Clark and Jenkins. And, and again, you know, Langford is off to a, a great start this year, but I think there's even more positional value with somebody like Max Clark. So I, I could, I think, build a pretty strong case for, uh, for either of those guys ahead of, uh, ahead of them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, me and Peter recently did a draft podcast where we basically talked a lot about this 1-1 debate that we're talking about now. So if you want more of that, check out that podcast. I think Peter, his order would have been Cruz, Skeens, Langford, Dolander. Mine was Cruz, Langford, Skeens, Dolander. So including all the six players we're talking about with those high school guys, if you're if you're making the picks, what do you think your order would be today? I think I would go... I would probably still lean Cruz, number one. He just looks so good this year. Um, And then I probably would go Clark. 
Number two, you I'm can't a big quit Max Clark. That's your guy. Why would I want to? <laughs> no. uh, and then I, I'd probably be split between Skeens and Jenkins after that. Um, I'd like to see how Skeens finishes out the year. Um, you know, as long as if, if he's healthy by the end of the year and still dominating, I might go with him. But man, like Walker Jenkins could be middle of the lineup, like plus hit, good feel for the zone, 30-plus home run type guy with good defense in probably a corner outfield spot. He was moving around so well the other night. He does, man, and he has good instincts in center field, too. He's just, I mean, he's like 6'3", like what he's, I don't know, I don't know what he's up to in weight-wise right now, but he's... The body looks amazing. I don't know what he's listed at. It's like 210, 215, but it's super lean, muscular. The strides are graceful and powerful. There was one fly ball that was hit to left field. I mean, he got a good jump off off the bat and was basically standing right behind the left fielder when it was caught. It was a very routine, straight to like your typical left field alignment fly ball. And I was like, he, he just got over there and made it look really easy to cover that distance. Um, so I'm glad that you like him too. I think for me, it's hard to separate just kind of how the industry has talked about the top four college players at this point from my own personal opinions. Um, I would probably still go Cruz Langford one, two. I would then probably go see, like I want to take the college pitchers, but thinking about just the risk of that demographic, seeing what's happened to the pitchers year after year after year, like we feel so good about Andrew Painter, clean bill of health coming into the year and then just bang, he's injured. The prospect valuation falls a lot because of that. Cause there, there are questions. What's he going to look like when he comes back? The developmental timeline has been pushed back. I, I, I'm really tempted to just go hitters and I, I would go, I would certainly go right now Jenkins over Clark between those two. And I would go Skeens over Dullander today. I really don't know how, if I was like picking three and Cruz and Langford were in front of me, how I would want to attack that because it just is so rare to see uh, or to be able to acquire a pitching talent like a Skeens and like a Dullander. So it's tricky. Where does where does Langford play ultimately? So he's played left field right. mostly. He he played a couple games in center. That's gonna be the biggest question with him when he comes back from his injury in about a month or so. How much does he play in center field? Because he's he's been a more dynamic runner over the last six months or so than Cruz, but Cruz has also logged a lot of time as LSU's center fielder and he's looked fine. In that role, even if most people think he's, he's probably going to wind up as a good corner outfielder, I think three of the four players we've talked about here look more like corner outfielders, but I think they all actually have a chance to start their career in center field. And, and maybe it just depends on what other outfielders are in in the system and on the big league team that you're going to play on where you play. But Langford has pretty consistently turned in 70 great times, which is pretty surprising given how big and physical he is. Whoever drafts him will certainly give him an opportunity to start in center field. I think the same is probably true of Walker Jenkins. But Mm -hmm. I do agree with you still that if you're looking at long-term positional value, Max Clark gives you the best chance at a a center fielder and an impactful one at that. It it wouldn't shock me if all four of them were still playing center field three years from now, though. Yeah. I mean, I just, like, I look back to guys who they're all different kinds of players but like they have some similarities to him in you know Corbin Carroll P 
Pete Crow Armstrong, Robert Hassel. And again, like, you know, Clark has louder tools than Robert Hassel, but it's the same kind of like left-handed, good swing with a ton of contact, great pure feel for hitting. Uh, you know, the Pete Crow Armstrong, another guy who's just a ton of contact and good defense in center field. And he's he's more physical and, and more present strength than Corbin Carroll and yeah. uh, all of these guys. And Corbin Carroll is like the fastest player in baseball at this point. He's not even projected to play center, right? They're going to put him in left, which is crazy. No one would say that, oh, Corbin Carroll can't play center field. He just happens to play the same outfield as Alec Thomas, who's also a really good center fielder. Yeah, until Drew Jones comes up. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I think it's a good problem to have when you've got three plus or better defensive center fielders in all three of your outfield positions. Maybe you yeah. can fire some fly ball pitchers there. So I, I just like see those guys and, you know, especially where they were drafted. And I, I could see where, you know, teams might slide Clark a little bit further down their list than I would have him. But I think all those guys today look pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they do. Um, I'll, I'll, definitely be happy if uh like if if the oakland a's get max clark at number six i think they should be they should be pretty psyched i don't yeah. think that would be like a big drop off by any means to me well i think the biggest the biggest what if for the a's is going to be if if there winds up being this clear separation of talent that ends before their pick you i think you will always just kind of feel bad because in, in the old system you would have had access to that talent pool even if even if the overall strength of the class means you're going to be getting a better player than you typically would at six, you always want to be picking as high as possible when you're in that range and, and ha- being able to have the flexibility one and have your, your choice of players too. Um, but it, it certainly could be the case that all six of these players wind up forming that top tier. Maybe there are others. Maybe Hurston Waldrop is involved in that. Maybe Braden Taylor gets involved in that. Maybe, I mean, we haven't even talked about the college shortstops, Jacob Gonzalez and Jacob Wilson. Like, there's a lot of very good players, and I think that the A's should have a chance to add an impact player regardless this year at six. Um, but I do still think it's pretty tough when you go from two to six this year as it stands today because the way the industry is talking about that top four is exciting. Um, but, yeah, you'll get you'll get a good player regardless. Yeah, I was going to say, Hurston Waldrop at Florida striking out like 40-something percent. <laughs> of the batters he's facing he's looked i mean i think hurston waldrop is actually a great way to reinforce the point that i was trying to make just a second ago which is we so i'll just spoil this one in the mock and if you want the rest of the mock picks go read the mock but we have hurston waldrop going 10 to the marlins in in this mock draft and this was the scouts pick as well not mine and I basically raised the question of, like, how would you compare Hurston Waldrop to a guy like Max Meyer, who the Marlins also took a few years ago, but they took him at the number three spot in the draft. And my is also sense, Is also injured? Exactly. So, yeah, you're just kind of making the case that you should be taking hitters up here. But um, the, the fact that they're comparable talents at the same time I feel like just really hammers home how how good this draft class is that you can get a number three talent in what is it the 2020 draft class is available at number 10 and he might have a better chance to start than Meyer did at the time too I mean I just think it's a very strong draft class it's it's very good there there are a lot of great players at the top Um, and I, I think probably the best draft class I've covered 
Yeah, I like the I like the top end talent. I like the depth. I mean, even maybe not quite as much on some of the college positional guys where I'm more lukewarm relative to the industry on some of them. I I can definitely see where guys like Johanny Morales at Miami and Brock Wilkin at Wake Forest are not your type of players, but they're also both mashing. They've got a ton of power. In the case of Johanny, there's a ton of athleticism there. I mean, Maui Ahuna could be a guy who moves up boards once, once he's kind of back in the swing of things. If he hits... Uh, in the SEC and continues to play the shortstop that he played. Kyle Teal is raking. He's moving up boards. I mean, Tommy Troy seems more of your MO, Ben. Matt Shaw hasn't got off to a great start, but he's got tools and is going to stick in the middle of the infield. And Rhett Lauder is maybe more of your like standard high floor, low ceiling, if we want to use those terms, which maybe we really don't want to use those terms. Like he should be a, a pretty reliable pitcher. You can get in the middle of the first round. Like, I think there's just a lot of talent here. Yeah, I think I think I think there's depth of prep talent too. I mean, like I look at guys who are not even in this mock draft in the first rounds, and I'm like, man, I'm I'm excited for this second to third round range yeah. for some we of these were, high school guys. We were getting to the 20s in the mock draft and. I was looking around. I was like, there's still a lot of players that I really like here. And that's normally not the case. Normally you get into the back of the first and you're kind of like reaching for players. You're like, ah, I don't, I don't really love this. But I, I was looking around at Bryce Eldridge. I was looking at Blake Mitchell. We've got Charlie Soto in the twenties. And, and then we didn't even really tap into fully tap into this high school shortstop group that includes, um, Colt Emerson, and Colin Houck and Arjun Namala. There's a lot of high school shortstops. Adrian Santana is probably going to be moving in that range. I I love this class, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's deep. And, and we'll start to see, too, some once games get going throughout the entire country, some of the high school pitching start to tick up. I mean, we've already seen it from some guys that you've yeah. written about, but I'm sure there will be other Noble Meyer guys the other that, night and his stuff sounded pretty explosive. I think he yeah, just last night as we record this podcast. I mean, that's what he does. <laughs> he, he throws hard and he throws a, a great slider. So I think at this point, probably the favorite to be the first high school pitcher off the board though. We've seen that change in, in recent years. So we'll see if that holds serve. Yeah. I think he's definitely the top, at least on talent. He has to be the, the top high school pitcher right now. Absolutely. Were there any surprises from you in that mock, by the way? Uh, big surprises. That's a good question. Hmm. Uh, nothing like nothing radical, mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, still seeing like Bryce Eldridge as a first round pick <laughs> as a hitter is like, I know you're going to say that one just incredible because <laughs> I, I, I just like I like him so much as a pitcher yeah and to see him go out and be you know in the first round mix as a hitter is like geez this guy is like a serious serious athlete and just a serious talent I hope he gets a chance to do a two-way thing in pro ball I think it's probably unlikely but mm. I would love to see him get the opportunity to do it and just see what happens yeah yeah i mean he I, I, this guy's throwing the six seven right-hander with good 
body control and athleticism throw at mid nineties, you know, with, you know, feel for an off speed pitch. It's I, I'd let them, I'd let them do it. You know, who's really going to benefit from this draft class is the Mariners. They're picking at 22, 29 and 30. They get the 29th pick for the prospect promotion incentive with, with Julio Rodriguez, the supplemental pick in the right after the first round, there are going to be some players who, we think of as first rounders who don't go in the first round and they're going to be right there waiting to scoop those guys up. So it's always a good year to have extra picks, but especially in a strong draft class, you've got to feel maybe more excited about having those extra picks. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a good one. The, the Mets move back in the draft. Is that right? Yeah. The Mets moved back 10 spots. They're picking 32. The Dodgers also moved back 10 spots and I'm really bummed about the Dodgers, too, because they would have picked a little sooner than they typically do. Um, but the both of those teams went over the CBT by more than $40 million, so that's why those picks fall into that supplemental first-round range. Tough year to be a Mets and a Dodgers fan. Yeah, really tough year. The Dodgers, are not, the, the Dodgers have zero chance of finding a good player picking in the uh, 36 range. No chance. Yeah, another... Bay of the draft runs out of talent after about 35, so <laughs> I think oh, they'll be all right. Man. Yeah, this will be fun. All right, uh, any other topics you want to get into, Ben? We've we've kind of cruised through it this week. Uh, yeah, so to speak, with all our Dylan Cruz man, conversation. That's the second one that I didn't even really mean to. <laughs> this is what happens when you podcast weekly. You just, you just naturally you get better at these little these little tricks of the trade. Uh. Yeah, do we have uh, do we have listener questions or? We do. We do have a listener question. We've got one from Michael on Instagram. He asks, "How do scouts or college recruiters feel about athletes who reclassified? They hate them." <laughs> That's a little harsh. No, um, I guess it, it probably depends on the player. In general, certainly on the scouting side, if a player reclassifies and he's significantly young for the class, it's, it's definitely viewed as a positive. I mean, think of how we talked about Cam Collier. If you can reclassify and then kind of rise to the occasion, you will look very good for scouts and for college recruiters. If you're reclassifying and you're not a Cam Collier, it just means you're getting to campus sooner. So I imagine they like that as well. There are a lot of players who have who've reclassed or enrolled early to get to campus. I can't imagine scouts don't like, or college recruiters don't like that. There have certainly been some examples of players who maybe shouldn't have reclassified um, and would have benefited if they'd stayed in their their same class and just developed kind of with their peers. But I think largely the players who do it do it for good reason or because they are advanced enough that it makes sense for them. And in that case, I feel like it's mostly positive. But like anything, it's probably more of a case-by-case basis. What are your thoughts? Before I answer... You bring up an interesting thought too that Cam Collier did reclassify when he was he would have been a twenty twenty three high school player. So imagine throwing him imagine into him. this draft. Yeah, we're like I don't know where you would put him relative to Clark and Jenkins. I mean, before he reclassified, he was he was number three. Yeah, I what was our, the board when the last time Collier was was in that class? Do you remember what the high school ranking was? He was number three, I think, at the time. I'd have to go back and you'd check. Have had Clark, you'd have had Clark one. I know at one point um, Thomas White was number one in the class. Yeah, early, like I think like entering the summer. Mm-hmm. And then like Walker Jenkins was so good. And it was like, no, 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 he's got to 
<laughs> move up right next to Clark. So, okay, so Clark was Clark was consistently the top guy in the class. White was the top pitcher, and then so Collier would have been third at one point behind those two. Clark, I think at one point it was probably Clark, White, and then Collier, and then yeah. I forget if Cam. I forget if Cam reclassified before we moved Jenkins to two, mm-hmm. and then we moved uh, Collier to ahead of him. But yeah, either way, he was an elite player in that twenty three class. And now I'm surprised you never had Kevin McGonigal juice up at the very top with Clark. It seems like Clark and McGonigal are just your guys. We had uh, yeah, we had Kevin top ten pretty early, and then by the time. After PDP, like so, like right after the draft came out, we had, uh, or right after the 2022 draft ended, mm-hmm. then we had Clark Jenkins McGonagall one two three. Okay, and at that PDP event is where McGonagall hit nothing but barrels the entire time. So, well, that's I mean, literally every time yeah, I guess Kevin McGonagall place. So yeah, um, but yeah, imagine, imagine every time we talk there. about where these pitchers rank though. They just moved down boards. <laughs> yeah. No fault of, well, maybe some fault, but like, it's just hard to be a pitcher and, and stay at the top there. There's so many, so many ways things can go poorly for you. That's why we got to cancel spring training. We got to cancel spring training. <laughs> We've got to remove pitchers from prospect eligibility overall. So we'll just have a list of prospects and then we'll have a separate list of non prospects that includes pitchers. Um, cancel the World Baseball Classic. No, I like the WBC. And what else are we canceling? <laughs> cancel Fox Sports and cancel YouTube TV. That's what All we're right. Doing. Well, it's enough of this cancel culture, Carlos. Well, let's get back to but the question. We've I, really think, I think if you are well, – there's two things. One, you could reclass up a grade or you could reclass down. But if you're reclassing up the way – Collier did it a little different way because he went to junior college. But if you're doing it you know, like the way Walter Ford – did or let's say Brady Neal in in his draft year or two, uh, and he obviously ended up at LSU instead. Um, you know, Connor Griffin was in the 2025 class, reclassified to become 2024. He's the number one player for uh, 2024 in a high school class right now. Um, so if you are if you are an elite elite talent, then yeah. I think it can, it can work out for you. It can work out in your favor. Um, that said, if again, like if Cam Collar had just stayed in high school and been in this year's high school class, like things still would have worked out pretty well for him. So, um, I think if you're like if you're an older high school player, right? Like if you would be 19 on draft day, that's where a lot of the talk comes in now, I think from agents who are looking at, or they're technically what advisors at this point, uh, but they're the agents looking at their players and saying, Hmm, you know, if this player reclassifies from say 2024, 2023, and now he'll be 18 on draft day instead of 19, that might make him more appealing to clubs, whether they're using a model or, or just trying to evaluate the player. So that can make a difference. But again, like you still have to have, you know, pretty premium talent for that to work. Just because you're an older high school player, if you're the number, you know, 94 
player in the country and you reclassify like you're no no guarantee to get drafted and then it cuts the other way too because as an older high school player you can have an advantage in the draft because if you're just a typical age you'll be draft eligible again after your yeah. junior year whereas if you're that point. That's a good if one. you're older you could be a draft eligible sophomore so you could end to get drafted again in two years if you're older for the high school class and you give yourself more options that way yeah no good point i think the draft eligible sophomore component is a a good one to mention because there is something to having your high school year you get drafted you kind of weigh your options then you only have two years in college get a chance again if still you're not in a position where you want to go you got your junior year your 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 third year in college jonathan cannon i think is probably the most prominent example of a guy who was draft eligible as a sophomore came back um, then did his junior year and was also I think he was pretty highly regarded to come out of high school as well Um, so that'd be an example there Um, you could also but then you could also read some kids will reclass down a year not so much for explain the logic of that one because that one doesn't seem like it would make a lot of sense well I don't know that they're doing it so much for draft purposes necessarily um they're i mean it's probably just to be (laughs) you know every everyone's reason is different but it does give you an extra you know year of physicality (laughs) over the other players who are in your class and from a if you're looking at it from the college recruiters standpoint like they're probably fine with it. Like they don't care. Like, all right. So now we have a, you know, we'll have a freshman coming in who's 20 years old, maybe instead of, you know, 18 or 19, they don't see that being viewed much more positively from college coaches compared to pro guys who would, who would only think of that negatively. Yeah. So that's part of it. Um, on, on the other hands, you know, there are some college teams that do encourage their players to, uh, to reclass younger, obviously not for the sake of increasing their draft stocks. They don't want these guys to get drafted, but um, sometimes just to get them to campus a year early. I mean, yeah. Florida has an infielder right now, Cade Curlins, who reclassified to, and he he uh, he wasn't even eligible for the draft last year because of the timing of when he reclassified. He just did it because he was like, I want to go to Florida earlier and then we have other judd fabian at florida did the same thing yeah i mean and we you know obviously like robert moore when he was in high school re reclassified or i get maybe the correct term is just like kind of he enrolled early at arkansas uh max coffer was a you know catcher at uh, or is a catcher now at texas a&m who otherwise would be in his senior year so we do see some players just enrolling early in college because like the opposite of the the draft eligible sophomore thing where you're, you're getting one less bite at the draft and you're you're really just committed to college maybe there's an opening on the lineup for whatever reason some players have been drafted some players didn't reach campus that were expected to now there's a hole now there's an opening if you feel you're advanced enough if the coach feels like you got a role to play it could be some sense just to kind of jump start it and then you're still uh, when you eventually if you're like dead set on going to college and you, you weren't seriously considering the draft out of high school because of signability or just because you, you want to go to college you value the college experience you will also then be younger uh, compared to your typical peers um, when it's time for the draft in three years out of college which is valuable for the pro teams 
Yeah, it probably cut Robert Moore some slack off of, you know, a not-so-hot year for him this mm-hmm. past year. Absolutely. Yeah, so good question from Michael. Thanks for that one. Um, if you guys do have questions, again, I'll just plug the email we have. It's futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. That is in the show notes. Um, we'll both get those emails, and we appreciate all the questions you guys send along. So thank you for that. I think that about does it for today's episode. It feels like a brisk future projection podcast episode, Ben. The the pitch clock is coming for us as well. Yeah, we're we're all in on the pace of play. Changes coming. Exactly. Do you have anything you need to plug or you want to plug or you want to mention before we get out of here? What are you are you actually going to be able to see some baseball up there anytime soon? I know the the northern states, I mean April is coming around. You guys are going to get started up there at some point, right? For yeah, for live baseball, I mean the good thing is it's on TV too, so you <laughs> can count. see all that. Doesn't count. But yeah, scrimmages and stuff like that starting up pretty soon, so that's good. Our our twenty twenty five rankings are out right now too, so uh this podcast will be talking, I'm sure, a lot about Ethan Holiday over the next uh yes. several several years. Uh hopefully we keep keep going <laughs> for uh, for all of that time, but he is the number one high school player for the 2025 draft. If the name sounds familiar, you might know his dad, Matt Holiday, uh, seven-time MLB All-Star, his older brother, Jackson, number one overall pick in the 2022 draft last year for the Orioles. And I think Ethan is already bigger than yeah. both his brother and his dad, and his swing is absolutely beautiful, and uh, he is just starting to kind of tap into his strength and his uh, kind of kind of starting to scratch the surface of his potential. But already a very polished hitter and just really exciting upside. So um, that's a fun I'll, one. Yeah. Everyone told me throughout the time that Jackson Holiday was being scouted that that Jackson looked more like his mother and Ethan looked more like his father, and I think that's definitely apparent in the frames of these two we might have talked about it already but there would be there would be scouts who would show up and see a holiday at their high school and they would be looking at ethan thinking it was jackson for the current class <laughs> just because he was more, he's more physically advanced at, well, he, at that age yeah i mean and that's the thing too is you know a lot of the mlb scouts haven't really seen a lot of the 2025 high school players yet but with Jackson, or excuse me, I'm going to make this mistake constantly, I'm sure, uh, over the years. But with Ethan, you know, he was a freshman last year on his, you know, the same team as his brother, Jackson, who was a senior. So everybody went in, all his high-level scouts and directors and cross-checkers and special assistants and everybody was going in to see Jackson. So they all got to see Ethan Holiday play last yeah. year already. And that halo effect is very real too. I think there's no way of avoiding it. How how much it actually matters and can help you. Yeah, I mean, if you know, and if bloodlines are important to you, and like we've talked about before, I don't know how much of it is nature versus nurture. Like how much of it is the genetics that he's gotten from his father, or how much of it is the you know the the resources and access to you know, the growing up around baseball for both of the holiday brothers. I don't know what, how you tease out those two factors, but there's definitely something there. So you can see the talent. Now you can see the way the swing 
works and how easy it is and his ease to drive the ball already really well to the opposite field and how much strength projection he has still to come and that's all exciting and then you layer on you know the the fact that his dad was a you know big time star MLB player and his brother was was a number one overall pick but but also the way I think that Jackson became a number one overall pick probably helps him is, is even more exciting because Jackson was you know a very good prospect the summer going into his senior year and then he got you know bigger taller stronger faster more power like everything kept ticking up for him and you know you could certainly see the same thing happening for uh for ethan Mm -hmm. over over the next few years yeah pretty pretty cool for stillwater high school to have a holiday manning shortstop for basically eight straight years that's kind of fun yeah, yeah. And obviously, yeah. It's uh yeah, pretty good, pretty good baseball family all around. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Oklahoma State uh commit. Wonder how uh Wonder why. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> um yeah, it's just a just a great baseball family. So, um pretty excited. Yeah, his I mean, the coach there for is uh Josh Holiday for anyone who's not aware. Um so that's, you know, just calling his nephews to <laughs> for a uh, for unfortunately a i'm not sure if he'll get to campus either but um yeah I hope yeah that's always the the tough part but i mean look like dylan cruz got to uh that's very true we always got to dylan campus too yeah or jack jack lighter kumar rocker like you know pitchers pitchers yeah but i would still like guy guys who we think are like you know big big time guys and dylan cruz was a still a big time guy um his senior year but um you know at 16 years old a lot can a lot can still change there is although he withdrew from the draft so i guess never mind um i was about to say there i'm sure a ton of scouts wanted him out of high school but he wanted oh i'm sure yes it's just a yeah it's a matter of uh beating the the price point that you're willing to to it's worked out pretty well for dylan cruz i'll say looking pretty good for him now Um, yeah he's probably made some money already yeah, absolutely he has. Yeah. So check out Ben's list there. The mock draft, like we've talked about, is on the site. The first version, uh, there will be many more to come. We've got WBC content. We've got spring training content. We've got college stuff rolling. Just a lot of stuff going on at the site. So there's a lot there if you have not subscribed so far. I would like to know what the percentage of our listeners who actually, basically, if, if there was a way to find out the listeners who mostly listen to 80% plus of the podcast who is not subscribed. I, I feel like that'd be a rare uh, profile to listen to the podcast that long and also not subscribe to BA. But are if you, you gonna, don't, uh, are you going to cancel them too? No, I'm not going to cancel them too. None of them are canceled. They get a free pass in my book. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for supporting. Thank you for listening. Uh, we love doing this and you guys help us do it. So, For Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time.